prompt just me. Just as a reminder, mm. yeah, yeah. So is it just about the science paper, or? Um, the science paper and your lab and research and who Stuff. you are and... Okay. Welcome back, you're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out about the discoveries they make and the stories behind them. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by ecologist, entomologist, and climate scientist, Dr. Nigel Andrew. Nigel, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, James, thanks for inviting me. Would, would you call yourself a climate scientist? Um, probably, I wouldn't say so, because I don't actually study... <laughs> The climate science as such. I, I, I study the responses of sort of yeah, insects, particularly to um, climate change. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I guess I can call myself all sorts of things depending on who I talk to. So it's probably, it is one of those big conundrums you face as a scientist about what you label yourself as. It comes in so, handy though, I think. Yes. You can decide to just say, I'm a scientist. That's right. Or you can scientist say, or a biologist. Sensory um, ecologist, yeah. I get a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of touchy-feely kind yeah. of thing. So what sort of insects are you studying? Well, the at the moment, we've got an interest in ants, dung beetles, stick insects. Mm-hmm. And, and previously, I've, I've also I've done a lot of community work. So when we've been working with... Um, assemblages of insects on acacias. Okay. And so, yeah, I've, I've sort of, at, at the moment, yeah, the, the big theme of the research I and also my, the group in my lab is working on our ants and dung beetles. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and, and also we've had some work and of, of current work on stick insects as yes. well. So you're looking at how they're potentially going to respond to climate change or are already mm-hmm. responding. But then insects are massively diverse group mm-hmm. can you generalize across the group and how they're responding oh that's what i'm trying to do in sort of my my 25 lifetimes that i'm trying to span <laughs> into into one lifetime it's yeah it's it's one of these big conundrums about how is, is there any predictability about how anything will respond to climate change or uh, not just species responses idiosyncratic but also populations and individual responses idiosyncratic and it's mm-hmm. one of the the ideas that I've been thinking about over the last couple of years is, yeah, I originally started doing work on climate change, um, collecting lots of animals, uh, lots of insects um, through spraying uh, acacias with pyrethrum spray, mm. collecting the insects that fall down and actually sorting through them all and trying to predict climatic, climate change responses based on the community assemblage, what you find mm. pickled in the bottom of these trays. And... From that, I sort of yeah started to d- come up with some you know broad ideas about yeah what what will do better, what will do worse, mm-hmm. and what might have to move. Mm-hmm. And from doing that, I started to move into looking at um, individual species responses and also behavioural and physiological responses mm-hmm. because again it, that's the things that start to change. And also recently, I've become more interested in. Um, looking at actual individual responses specifically, not just at one point in time, but actually through their entire lifespan, because mm-hmm. climate change affects the individual. It's the individual res- individual's response that mm-hmm. you know changes their longevity, changes their feeding, changes their reproduction, and that that base information leads up and affects the the population and the community, and then the species distribution as well. Mm-hmm. So. 
we're starting to get the um, you know the, the the statistical modeling tools to actually build these into you know to build more sophisticated models rather mm. than just doing big arm wavy things. We can actually get huge amounts of information based on individuals across their lifespan and actually build that into try and find out okay as a you know when are the most vulnerable points in time for a species in terms of being exposed to extreme climate change or climate variation mm. and again not looking at the mean change in climate but actually looking at the extremes like the extreme hots the extreme cold yeah uh, frosts um, rainfall events so it's all about the you know trying to find these extremes extremes just putting huge amounts of information in mm. and seeing if anything predictable comes out at the end um so that's kind of the challenge, yeah. I'm so is that to deal with. simply a matter of having these insects in the lab and exposing them to extreme temperatures? Or? Um, it's it's a whole range. So that's part of it. So you have the insects in the lab reared and actually what we, it's, called, it's called thermal limit respirometry where you actually ramp the temperatures up mm. basically until they get to their critical thermal limits and see how they perform through that period of time. You can also, yeah, keep, you know, animals at higher temperatures in um, you know, variable temperature rooms, but then also expose them to extreme temperatures and humidity events to see how those extremes affect them. Mm. And then taking that out into the field as well to actually look at, yeah, sort of how insects in different parts of their population um, deal with um, being uh, exposed to extreme events. So doing some sort of ecological... Um, manipulative field studies mm. and also the and the background to that is also doing field surveys because a lot of the time when you're working with these insects the species that are actually in certain sites aren't really well known mm. so you actually have to get that background information as well yeah. to then actually start to try and work out how they're going to be um, manipulated by the changing climate so you can go out into the field and if you find insects restricted to a particular area you can assume right the sort of optimal or survival range must be these particular climate factors how will that change yeah it's um so it's yeah and, but they also might be restricted um, by parasites or predators or mm. interactions with other species so and that's the other joy about working with ecology is yeah you 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 look at the potential ranges of species and you know that's that that could be restricted by yeah sort of climate but it also could be simply a barrier with another individual species that mm-hmm. they they interact with at not necessarily all the time not particularly not necessarily during the day when we go out and sample but it can be <laughs> you know it can be some impact that happens at a very unusual point in you know yeah during the year or during a certain part of their life history mm-hmm. which causes them which restricts them to that particular area mm-hmm. and it it is one of the the great things about working in this area is that actually a lot of it is doing going back and doing fundamental research really you know classical natural history work actually going out there looking at things looking at animals and plants in their environment and seeing what they're doing mm. and you can use a lot of um yeah sophisticated equipment with the respiratory gear that we've got but you can also just yeah go out and actually sort of look at how things behave mm. when you put them under under different circumstances I mean, it's interesting because insects can be sort of stereotyped as a little bit invincible. You know, you always hear people talk about cockroaches surviving oh, yes. nuclear explosions yes. and yep. stupid things like that. <laughs> but they are quite vulnerable. Yeah, the um, the B-grade movies don't do them justice no. as much as they should. <laughs> uh, but they, that's, again, having, you know, 
how many million species do we have we identified or have you know predicted to be out in the world? You know, say if there's eight million species that mm-hmm. you know are on the earth at the moment, there's going to be a few species that are very common, that are hyperabundant, that we know a lot about. Um, that you know, in many cases, we actually call pest species. They they're performing really well, and they're the ones that we a lot the the, the broader public does recognise quite easily, mm-hmm. and. Most of the the diversity of the species groups are very cryptic. Most of the insects are generally very cryptic, and we know very little about them, if anything at all. A lot of them, most of them, won't actually have names. Mm-hmm. So we, as humans, we you know obviously associate with things that we understand a bit more than anything else, and yeah. we associate with insects in particular that have a close association with humans, and they're you know pest species, all the cockroaches, or you know um, bees, for example, um, honeybees. Mm. Um, you find a lot of um, people don't recognise that there are native species of bee that are also pollinators mm. in cropping areas. Everyone assumes that the honeybee is the pollinator, um, not just in Australia but worldwide. But in yeah, fact, yeah. you know, just you know, there's a whole range of different species that pollinate crops and uh, and also our native plants. Mm. So, understanding how insects are responding to climate change isn't just a conservation question. This is a pest control and agricultural. Yep, and it's, a, it's, it's also there's a, it's a question that crosses over every aspect of, of our livelihoods, really. You know, pretty much every person who's listening to the podcast, there's probably an insect within two metres of them at mm. any point in time. And they're always around. And a lot of these, the ins- their responses to climate change, there's always going to be a suite of winners. There's always going to be a suite of losers. Mm. And there's ones that might do better under different circumstances. They might be, um, they, they might do better for a little while, then they'll do poorer or vice versa. Mm. It, you're, what's with such a rapid sort of change in a fundamental um, aspect of their, of their environment, which is the climate, that can have very unpredictable effects. Mm. And we know that, you know, just over, you know, um, geological history, most species that you know have been alive on the earth today are extinct so there's a huge number of species that have gone extinct before the ones we see today yeah and you know in many cases we are sort of you know we we're sort of pushing evolution at a much quicker rate than what would naturally happen and from doing that there's going to be winners and losers and chances are right now we're losing species before we're even discovering them oh we know that yeah we know there's a huge number of species that continually go extinct um before we have any idea of what we're losing Mm. them and it's the um you know the great blinkers on the human society if we don't know about it you know it it will go away so (laughs) (laughs) and um, even if we know about it a lot of cases it will go away it's um yeah it's, it's a very unusual sort of way that humans think about you know problems in terms of yeah you just don't have to worry about it and it'll sort of you know the problem will go away eventually mm-hmm. and it usually goes away by going away completely i mean it must be difficult to get people to care about conserving insects compared it's, to pandas and, yeah, and the cute and cuddly tigers yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it is i mean there is but in saying that you also have to pick the winners i mean you know with with you know example with with lots of mammals there's plenty of species out there that you know people despise you'd find very few people that would like to you know to keep their mm. non their their house mice that you know run through their house all the time or mm. um and with insects again it's trying to pick the the flagship groups and honeybees are a great example mm. of a flagship group um to say right and particularly with things like colony collapse disorder 
that's really galvanised a lot of um, international support, global support, really, for the um, decline of the honeybee. Mm. Whether or not why it's occurring, people are concerned about that. Mm. And I guess other animals that people, you know, particularly in, in farming communities, um, people love dung beetles. Mm. It's really surprising that, you know, for most groups, you know, a lot of people might not like honeybees because they sting. You know, and if you've got an allergy to a honeybee, then you don't necessarily feel a great sort of um, allegiance <laughs> to them. But, you know, for one for one group that people that I've never cro- come across, you know, particularly in farmers or in, in regional communities, people who don't like dung beetles. They're yeah. just loved. I mean, just the fact that they can um, break down, you know, that much cow poo so mm. quickly and clean up, you know, it's effectively cleaning up paddocks from here. Yeah, all the all the crap that's been put around there it's um, fantastic and so that's groups like the dung beetles even though they're you know there's a range of species that were introduced and people don't realize there's a whole suite of native australian dung beetles as well they're doing their job on the the kangaroo and wombat poo um, mm. and they also get into their cow poo and sheep poo they're actually one group that people do like mm. not if they even if they haven't sort of thought about it for too long they, they do appreciate <laughs> them but yeah it's it's hard to find flagship you know animals that you know butterflies there are some groups of butterflies mm. which people are particularly sort of fancy by uh, but yeah it's usually groups of animals rather than a species specific because there is so much diversity if we can make token. dung beetles at flagship species well, that'd be great well the the, the egyptians <laughs> did it you know the egyptians <laughs> made them guys you know they're on they're on to good things so yeah. it's um yeah you know we, we have you know, it's always good to relive um prehistory you know in those sorts of ways so whenever you're wandering around a paddock picking up kaipats you never mm. regret starting research on dung beetles <laughs> oh it's um well, that's why i've got students to also help me out they can <laughs> It's kind of fun because, yeah, you see uh, it's just one of those, it's a bit like, yeah, in some ways a, a present. You don't, if, if the cow pad is still sort of solid on top, you can flip it open and actually see what's happening underneath oh, yeah. and just see writhing, yeah, it's particularly if there's an, a couple of active species of dung beetles in an area. It's amazing how quickly they can just break down this this resource, mm. and it's yeah, it's it's fun in that sense because you do. I mean, having done a lot of work in national parks as well, where you know a lot of the work you do it by yourself, and you don't you know you, you want to try and be kept away from other people who are in there because you want to try and see you know nature mm-hmm. in all its glory, you know, working independently of humans. At this year with dung beetles, particularly, you're sort of seen how a insect um, is actually you know working as a you know as a farmer effectively mm. really really working the land and actually sort of increasing the health of, of pastures and paddocks mm. um, it's great and I guess that's one of the things we try and get across is to remind people they're not actually sort of valued you know we they're, they're valued in a sort of a they're doing a good job sense but they're not actually dollar valued and that's one mm. of the things that is always uh, I find concerning i know it's, it's always concerning we have to put a dollar value on anything but the problem that we also face is if it doesn't have a value, dollar value then it's actually not valued at all yeah you know and particularly the people who are making those final decisions on resourcing you know areas and the um the government you know you need to actually fundamentally things need to have a dollar value for them to be put in the hierarchy of importance mm. and yeah even things like having dung beetles out there working hard 
we still don't really have we they've been estimated their dollar value has been estimated in europe and america but not in australia Mm. i was amazed when i found out they're actually introducing dung beetles to Mm. australia Mm. to handle big animals like dairy cows and things that weren't here naturally Mm. i always thought that we learned our lessons from introductions of strange things. Yeah, it's um, and they still want to do it. And mm. so there's still one of the, I mean, yeah, that's one of the big sort of issues about introductions is that initially we introduced species from a certain part of their, um, their distribution. Mm-hmm. And I'm always, you know, and some of them were, you know, over 50% of introductions weren't actually successful. Mm. That's the other thing we have to remember about introductions of dung beetles. Mm-hmm. A huge number were introduced, but were not successful. And the the question arises, well, why weren't they successful mm-hmm. before? You know, in some cases, if we do want to introduce new species, maybe we should be looking at the current species we had have and seeing if we got the right genotype of those ones in, in the country. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can introduce a different population to keep the same species in here. Okay. To, and But also actually look at what caused... And even the current species we have, maybe we just need to breed them a bit better. You know, there's it's the, the great thing in, in agricultural systems. They, they like their breeding and mm. they like to sort of breed for the best traits. We haven't done that with dung beetles. We just breed them up and, you know, send them out. We send them all around Australia from one or two um, initial points. Maybe we should be a bit more sophisticated about actually how we are doing our breeding for these guys before we start, you know, introducing new species. So it's not that Australian species can't handle modern agriculture, it's just that... Oh, they, they just um, don't break it down, you know, they, as much as they introduce species. Mm. Down, you know, when you get a a, um, a native Australian dung beetle that comes across a, a cow pat, you know, it will quite it's happily jump in things. there. They, they, they're found in there. They mm. just don't break them down as, it, as like the introduced species do. So mm. they're... And that's one thing that was never actually identified when the introduced species came in is actually how they interact with each other. Mm. So that the introduced species came in, they did the job, but no one actually assessed how, what Im- impact that had on the, um, the native species. Mm. And that's one of the things we, or some of my students are starting to do as well as actually playing with those sorts of questions. So these Just, introduced species are being introduced from places that have sort of big ungulates yeah, so naturally sort Europe of adapted Africa, to those yeah. conditions, yeah. So yeah, they they from their their native ranges, mm. or, or effectively where they where they have um, have had livestock in the countries for centuries, mm. and so their their dung beetles know what to do with it in terms mm. of breaking it. In ter- from a management perspective, they break it down quickly, and it because of the um the the bushfly issue in Australia. That's why they 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 want to introduce more species to try and reduce bushfly activity, particularly. At the earlier parts of the, um, the spring season, where the current range of dung beetles don't perform as well as mm. what they do later in the season. So, are they having an impact on local species? Um, we're not sure. That's what we're trying okay. to find out. We, we still <laughs> we we don't know how they, in terms of how they interact, what they do when. If you're, you know, if, if you can imagine being on a dung pat, you know, there's you know a couple of introduced species coming in. There's a few native species in there. Do they partition their dung pat quite happily between each other? Mm-hmm. Or is there a what's called a priority effect? If the first species that comes in is a native, does that influence the introduced species and how they they actually you know um, dig through the dung and actually bury their brood balls mm-hmm. into the soil or vice versa? If a introduced species 
gets the priority and gets onto a dung pat, does a native species just say, no, I'm going somewhere else? Or mm. does it take, take its little corner and do its own thing and put its brood balls in, in there as well and actually put its larvae into the brood balls below the, the dung pat or you know, um, put, yeah, sort of actually feed away inside the pat itself. So you're about to kick off a new dung beetle project. Yeah, me and a few other collaborators, yeah, so this is a big, again, it comes back to the management side of things, Mm -hmm. so it was um, some funding from the federal government um, for the rural R&D for profit Mm -hmm. um, scheme, which is running through Meat and Livestock Australia, Australia, where we've got some large projects. Um, Firstly, there's one project just going out there and monitoring what dung beetles are found in different parts of Australia. There is another project looking to see at the... um, the, the, the genomes of the, the introduced species going back to their native distributions and seeing if we have introduced the appropriate genotypes. Okay. There's also some, there's also part of that is also looking at the potential for introducing more species, particularly in parts of Australia where the dung beetles aren't, you know, performing as well as they could be. Mm. Uh, I'm, there's also an aspect looking at, um, you know, basically ed- educational outcomes, sort of making sure people are aware of what's on their property, mm. and also the influences of uh, drenching their cattle, what influence that has on dung beetles. Okay. And and we the part, the project I'm interested in is the ecosystem services aspect. So mm. looking at, yeah, how much um, greenhouse gases are emitted from dung pats with and without dung beetles. Oh, okay. And also how they can, those greenhouse emissions differ between um, cow, sheep, and also native, native, um, poo and as mm. we go through so yeah sort of we're bringing some of those there's also some a whole range of other ecosystem services but the the other the una group is we're particularly folk interested in the, the greenhouse gas side of things so if dung beetles are affected by climate change and can't do their job properly that's a big ecosystem service lost it is it's a huge one mm. it's a it's a, a lot of um yeah dung that's going to be left on the ground and that's what it was like in the 1920s and 30s where there was just you know you you no longer are sort of enjoying your outside barbecues in summer because mm. you know if you if you think there's a lot of flies around now it's um yeah it, it would only get worse <laughs> <laughs> it's i know strange to think about agriculture in australia and the amount of poo that's been introduced artificially to this ecosystem. Mm. It's, yeah. And how, uh, how much that changes things. Yeah, and it's, particularly the actual, the sheer number of, you know, yeah, individual cows that we have, or even just, um, yeah, mammals in general. There's, mm. there's a, it's, it's a lot of waste product that is being, you know, if dung beetles weren't here to recycle it, you know, it's a great thing about the recycling. It puts the nutrients back into the soil if it's done properly. Mm. If it's just sitting on top of the soil, then, yeah, it basically... Is um yeah it's a resource lost effectively and mm. it yeah it has can have big impacts on how you know not only how we farm but also the type of outside living that we you know we actually have <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely well we'll we'll move on from poo talk <laughs> and I want to ask about a paper that is you've just published in Science what yes. is it about what did you publish. <laughs> This was a, it was, a it was a latitudinal gradient paper, and it was on it was on um, the impact of predation risk on caterpillars um, from the tropics to the, the poles. So 
I guess, again, coming into the background assumption with in terms of it's assumed that there's a higher diversity of species mm-hmm. towards the tropics compared to the poles. And there's been, in terms of interactions between species, there has been an assumption that herbivory is also higher in the tropics versus the poles. Mm-hmm. And is that just because there's more stuff? Um, yeah, and it's also thought that the interactions were stronger towards the, um, the tropics. Okay. But when it's actually been... And it was also based on... It was essentially based on a, a couple of publications in the 80s and from two individual sites. And also, over time, people tested it at individual sites or a, a small gradient mm-hmm. and found results, the similar results. But then when we actually came to assess it systematically, there actually wasn't a trend in herbivory at all. Okay. And um, I did a, a review a couple of years ago where we actually found one of the key problems with a lot of the work on herbivory in terms of predicting these gradients is that there's very little consistency in the methods being used. Mm-hmm. And when uh, for my PhD, I also used a consistent method, method to assess herbivory um, along the latitudinal gradient, and also found that it was not actually a you know a change in the rate of herbivory mm. um, along that gradient. Now, moving on, I guess from predation, it's it, there's been a huge amount of work done on herbivory. Um, it's, it's a massive literature, mm. but when it comes to predation, there's a huge lack of actual mm. um, work being done on it. And so, some colleagues of mine who were assessing herbivory. Uh, mainly in the Northern Hemisphere, so in Finland, but also um, they were from the UK working in Borneo. They'd been using um, fake caterpillars, so plasticine mm. caterpillars, um, <laughs> so basically rolling out little bits of plasticine and making them into little looper-style caterpillars. And the ones in the... Is this in, what's on your desk? Oh, yes, here. yeah. They're, they're really, <laughs> little Play-Doh caterpillars on yeah. the desk. <laughs> they run everywhere. That's great. <laughs> but they, yeah, what they were finding is there was no herbivory in the high latitudes. But in Borneo, there was a really high amount of herbivory. And so I thought, well, why not? Let's test this assumption. Let's test this actual latitudinal gradient in predation. Okay. And so we, they... Um, Thomas Roslin and Eleanor Slade, who are the, the key authors in this um, paper, they got you know basically got their cl- um, collaborators together and said, "Oh, do you want to work on some um, dummy caterpillar project?" That's and great. <laughs> it was really neat because it the caterpillars were all made by you know within one lab in Finland, so they sent them out around oh, the so world. So you didn't have to make your own no caterpillars. They, they, and that's the great thing they kept it they standardized it all, so they made sure that we got the same type of caterpillars. We glued them on to the leaf using the same type of glue. Mm-hmm. Um, they, we had the same protocol, so everyone followed the same protocol. And it's one of the very few projects that I, I know of that's actually, I think we had, what, 11,000 kilometer gradient. <laughs> and so actually having a, exact, a systematically similar yeah. assessment of what's going on. And, yeah, we left the caterpillars out for a couple of weeks and... What we found was that the um, the the caterpillars will basically they they got attacked by insects, mammals, or birds. So mm-hmm. the insects, there was like for example with ant marks, you could actually see where their their jaw marks were on it. Also, a dense left in yep. the plant, you can tell what's been eating it. Yep, yep. a little dense in the in the plasticine. If it was an ovipositor, you could see a little pinprick <laughs> into it. Um, if it was a bird, there'd be sort of a triangular beak mark. Mm-hmm. And if it was a mammal, there'd be more of a tooth mark mm-hmm. in the um, plasticine. 
And we found a really nice latitudinal trend in insect predation from the tropics to the um, the poles. Mm-hmm. But there was no similar predation uh, rate of predation for mammals or birds. Mm. So it was a consistent amount of predation across from the tropics to the poles. So there's a really nice differential between insects and the and the vertebrates. Why do we think that is? Is it an insect abundance it's, thing? It's, or? It's can be definitely an abundance and also they're... Um, they could be more focused on going for those types, those caterpillars in those mm-hmm. types of areas. Also with birds and mammals, it's, there's also a lot of biomass away from the tropics in the temperate zones. So there's actually a lot of biomass, you know, there's migrating birds, for example, mm-hmm. which have huge ch- um, movements. And so even though that the, yeah, it's all about how much biomass there is and how much focus there are on those particular types of um, yeah, that, that food resource mm-hmm. for, the, for the insects... Um, or as, as an as a uh, caterpillar, mm. so it's one of these really neat findings which we can yeah. There's a whole suite of questions that come from that, yeah. and then how do we then actually um, yeah? What what the the number of questions that can come up from finding this trend is fantastic. So mm. we can you know go on and ask you know questions. Are they you know if there are multiple sites you know do we find similar trends? Do the trends change over time? Mm. Um, what are they responding to? You know, yeah, what are the? Um, is it? Yeah, is predation um, sort of more intense? At you know, if you put different chemical cues on the the caterpillars as well. Mm. So it's a it's a really yeah sort of a simple idea. Is trying to say yeah, is there more predation in the tropics versus the poles? And now we've found a particularly nice trend where we can actually go and test a whole range of those other other mm. questions that come to mind. I mean, I really like the idea that you can just post out a little kit. So here's your caterpillars, go do mm-hmm. this experiment where we were talking before about how science can be really expensive and yep. a lot of that is just getting to places and, mm-hmm. and travelling to places. Are you inspired now to come up with more ideas of how to do these huge landscape scale mm-hmm. things well at the moment i've got a project uh, called the future keepers which mm-hmm. is a um yeah citizen science ant project where we we do a symbol we actually have set up some warming chambers around australia and so yeah physically i've been out to all these sites to set up these these open the open top passive warming chambers so they're made out of perspex um six sides about you know a meter wide and you just put them in a um yeah so a six-sided um beast that you just sit up just off the ground mm. and they passively warm the te- the the um microclimate in there by about two to three degrees mm. and so we when i went to set up all these sites i actually gave everyone everywhere where i set one up a kit mm. so the sampling kit and also gave them instructions about how to how to <laughs> survey so i put out a call um yeah every couple of months for these sites to be surveyed and then they send all the um so this is to collect ants they're attracted to different diets. Mm-hmm. So they might be, we've put out their um, honeydew mimic, amino acid, sugar, fat, um, salt, and water as different diets that the ants might be attracted to. And yeah, we it's initial assessment to see what type of uh, diets ants are attracted to, but also if they're different between the warming chamber and the yeah, open. Yeah. And that, yeah, we, I think with a lot of citizen science projects that, um, I've been involved with it's you actually need to put a lot more investment of time in the initial stages of setting it up and mm-hmm. also giving 
your citizen scientists. Um, these these warming chambers are set up at environmental education centres in New South Wales, mm-hmm. and also um, <clears throat> different areas around. Currently, the ones in South Australia, ones at a botanic gardens, and also ones at a um, wilderness centre. So they they not scientists themselves. So mm. they need and they also need to be given instructions which are fairly straightforward and not too technical mm-hmm. and don't take too much time. Yeah, it, um, volunteers, yeah. essentially, yeah. And, yeah, it's um, a real key to this is making things relatively straightforward mm-hmm. and also making sure that, yeah, the, the information that citizens collect, they also get information sent back to them. I think a lot of the issues with citizen science projects is the scientists get in lots and lots of information but don't necessarily give a lot back in mm. terms of the information and also resources that are yeah, available yeah. to them. And it usually becomes, you've got to be a, a smaller targeted group that you focus on rather than trying to sort of go out to everyone um, completely. Mm. And that's always the hardest thing is about where to sort of fit in your, you know, from a researcher's point of view, to maximise the data you collect, but also make sure that it's a relatively good quality as well. Mm. Um, because, yeah, you can get plenty of data sort of t- brought in f- through citizen science research, but the quality can vary somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> but I mentioned before this insect predation paper was published in a journal called Science. Mm-hmm. So for people that are listening that aren't in the academic publishing sphere, what, is that, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> for you personally work. and you know, it's, logistically <laughs> uh, it's you uh, to get a paper in science it's a big thing I yeah. mean in terms of having you know the papers so that, not all journals are equal no this is sort of the biggest <laughs> of the, this nature and science are sort of the big biggest journals worldwide you know if you're publishing natural science you know it's you're on a on a good thing mm-hmm. and it's a it's a sign like the a lot of the public work they publish is a lot of G with science. It's a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, it's a really big bang for your buck in terms of finding a big result and finding a nice result like we found here where there was a really neat result, latitudinal gradient and also elevational gradient in predation yeah. as well. So the the findings, we you know, having a simple idea, I, I love the idea that I use plasticine. We use plasticine. And you've gotten the science. But it's, um, you know, most of the publications that, I've done and also coming out of my lab are in sort of what's called middle tier journals. So they they might be their internationally recognised journals. Mm-hmm. They've got you know editorial boards which are international, and you know they're solid research and that's sort of the the, the key places where I publish. It's your and bread it, and butter. Yeah, and every so often, yeah, these these kind of wacky ideas come out of the blue. So again, you know, I got an email from a colleague of mine saying, "Do you want to be involved in this? You know, it'll take a couple of days." You know, you'll set it up, go out and, and sample for a couple of hours, mm-hmm. collect some stuff, send it back. You know, we'll send you all the kit and then you send it back over to Finland mm-hmm. and we'll do all the work. And in terms of that, you know, actually looking at this, you know, identifying the predation work. And because you're part of a team you're, or you're part of a big collaborative group, mm-hmm. um, the, yeah, what I'm doing individually, if, if I had just that one individual site that we've done just north of um, UNE in Armidale, that wouldn't have been published at all. You mm-hmm. know, just been just you know, a, sort of a very you know small scale project. But because it is at a, such a large scale, never been done before. The it's idea such a was fundamental simple. Yeah. question. Yeah, and we got an answer to the fundamental question mm-hmm. that can now be 
assessed in more detail by future research. Mm. It's, um, yeah, that's, it, it's really exciting, but also to get all the, I guess, all, all the moons to align in the sense that everything worked really well. <laughs> and that's, yeah, it's not something you can, you know, you can always aspire to, but you can never predict. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, you, uh, I'm really happy that, you know, this got into science, but it's, you know, for the fundamental work that I do, it's not necessarily, you know, there's always, you know, there, there's work, a lot of the work we do, you know, science wouldn't be appropriate for it to, mm-hmm. to go into because there's, you know, more, yeah, classic natural history type work, classic experimental work, mm-hmm. nuts and bolts work that is, you know, yeah, um, better, you know, better for a, a, a different type of journal. Mm-hmm. But does this mean good things for you career-wise? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You can never predict these things. Mm-hmm. I mean... It can't hurt, that's for sure. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not the thing that, you know, when I'm going for, you know, for example, ARC grants, which are the big sort of um, national research body in Australia that gives out competitive grants mm-hmm. to um, university researchers, having a science paper is mm-hmm. definitely a large feather in one's cap. <laughs> yeah. And it can, um, yeah, it... It has, you know, the prestige value. You know, it has big mm. prestige value. It, you know, the the university gets excited when their researchers get papers mm. in science and nature, and it's, um, yeah, it's it's a good, it, particularly from a simple advertising point of view for the university. It's fantastic yeah. for them, and it also increases my profile as a researcher, not just within the university, but also in Australia and worldwide, mm. and that's. Again, that's a good thing to, mm-hmm. to actually make, and it makes science more available, you know, simply by talking about using plasticine caterpillars, you yeah. know, to a wider audience. People say, well, that's just, you know, kid stuff. You go, exactly. You know, plasticine science is for kids. It doesn't have to be lasers and it's, no, robots, you know. But the actual thought process behind it is very sophisticated. You know, the actual product that we used is simple, but there's a lot of thought a lot of thought that went behind it to the point to get to putting that mm. you know, green bit of plasticine out on a leaf. Mm. And then once the data was collected, actually getting it all together, collating all the data from the worldwide sites and analyzing it and interpreting it. So it's a, um, yeah, a simple idea that, but both on either side of the, um, you know, the, the, the caterpillar, the dummy caterpillar, there is a lot of sophisticated knowledge and understanding of what, you know, ecological knowledge that mm. is embedded in that type of experimental work. Yeah. So that, that's the really neat thing. And it helps explain ideas to people. Mm. Uh, you can, you know, you can always take a bit of plasticine out and sort of roll off a caterpillar and, you know, and <laughs> or, or, a different type, yeah, or a different type of animal. Yeah, yeah, you can play with all sorts of different types of, you know, um, dummy, caterp- dummy animals. So. And just having this science paper means, you know, have a... A bit of a media storm oh, to yes, go yeah. through. <laughs> well, I'm here, aren't I? So, uh, <laughs> Step one, go on a podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think because um, I've, I've had a good relationships with, uh, you know, the regional ABC. Um, so, they've, you know, they've, they're really interested and keen in the, the story. The, 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 the sort of the senior authors on the manuscripts as well as put out this to all the international sort of agencies. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm actually, yeah, we'll be giving a talk on the morning. I'll be in 
Sweden in the morning, it's actually officially sort of unveiled. Um, <laughs> so that will be kind of fun. So I'll be able to actually give, give the first presentation of the figure. Oh, so you're presenting uh, this research? Uh, there, I'll put up a slide at least. Yeah, 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 just put a slide at the end just to say <laughs> this is now, now publicly available. So that'll be really exciting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I should probably let you get back to dealing with journalists and oh, adoring fans. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if people want to hear more about your research, they can check out your lab website. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's the Insect Ecology Lab at the University of New England. That's it. Mm-hmm. And they can hear all about your work and students there. Does that have a fancy URL or just Google it? I think just Google it. It's pretty right. easy. Yeah. Easy. Cool. All right. Well, thanks again, Nigel, for coming on. Thanks, Jack. Good fun. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, visit InSituScience.com to hear more podcasts and check out our short videos or like our new Facebook page. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.